0: Some of you will recall the late Billy Graham and his wife, the late Ruth Bell Graham from North Carolina. Billy, of course, was famous for his uh, global evangelism and crusades throughout much of the second half of the 20th century, but his wife, a good Presbyterian actually, uh, had her own quiet ministry in North Carolina where she raised five kids and wrote several books and Uh, taught in a variety of ways uh, in her own ministry settings. Though, understandably, in an extraordinarily challenging situation with a husband who traveled around the world uh, more than half of the year uh, while she was left with quite a bit on her own plate at home. Late in her life, there was an interview with her in which the interviewer asked about the challenges of her marriage, how difficult it must be he said, to navigate in this kind of environment with these, uh, you know, kind of goldfish bowl uh, situations that you live in. And and finally, the interviewer pressed a little more and said, I I wonder if over all of these years of marriage, surely at least once or twice, you must have considered divorce as an option. And Ruth paused for a moment and then with a characteristic twinkle in her eyes, she said, you know... No, we've never, never have thought about divorce. I mean, homicide a few times, yes. <laughs> but never divorce. Ruth and Billy knew something about the challenges that we face, especially in the relationships with those who are closest to us. Spouses and partners, other loved ones or family members, where relationships are so challenging in part because of our closeness. It makes it all the more likely that we'll step on each other's toes or risk so much that is at stake in those relationships. And what's true in our own personal families is also true here in our family of faith, that whether intentionally or unintentionally, we wound one another and are wounded by one another all the time. Being Christian, we know all too well, does not in any way erase our capacity for doing that wounding or receiving those wounds. And yet being Christian, that is being Christ-centered, turning and orienting our lives towards the ways of the kingdom of heaven, does have something to say about how we navigate those situations, not whether or not we have them. But of course, this is not easy work. The wonderful pastor and theologian Henri Nouwen once said, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all of us love poorly. And so we need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour increasingly. Forgiveness is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak, which is to say the whole human family. I love that line of Nowin's: forgiveness is the great work of love. It is a great work, and a challenging work. Jesus knew that too, in forming this first community of Christ followers. And so he talked a lot, and uh, taught a lot about forgiveness. As we've encountered over these last couple of Sundays, and encounter again, as we turn to Scripture once again, In Matthew chapter 18, listen as this morning I read from verses 21 through 35 to God's word for us today. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, the Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children, and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So, And I will pay you. But he refused. And he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. Now when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you, And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So, my Heavenly Father will also do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord. For you alone are our rock and our redeemer, and let all God's people say, amen. Amen. My brother and I are the first in our family history to go to college, first-generation college students, which meant I really didn't know what I was doing, and to be fair, my family really didn't either. We didn't do college visits. Uh, I applied to one school. I got in, and I went and showed up on campus for the first day of orientation, having never even visited the campus before. Fortunately, I stumbled into Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington, a Presbyterian college, which, to make a long story short, is how I became Presbyterian eventually, but that's a story for another time. I showed up not really even knowing how to navigate a college schedule or uh, a plan, And so I sat down that first week and signed up for the courses that I would take that fall. Because my focus was on music and education, I wanted to be a music director someday. The other courses that I was required to take took uh, sort of second place in my consideration. But of course there were requirements I had to fill, one of which was a science requirement. And a particular course title caught my eye. It was called Physics Without Math. Yeah, I thought, now that's a class I can get behind. And probably a class I can skate through, I thought, as I focused my time and attention towards things that were more important to me. Except, it wasn't long, after a couple of sessions of this course, that I began to realize I had gotten myself in way over my head. It turns out that perhaps I would have preferred to take physics with math. The course was challenging precisely because it wasn't quantitative. There was no clear, simple equation to solve for X that leaves one with the satisfaction of having the absolute and only correct answer. Instead, what my classmates and I encountered What we were left to wrap our heads around was a course that was trying to address the bigger picture, the deeper concepts about the ways in which the laws and principles of physics impact our everyday lives. The course was really part physics, part philosophy, and it was without any easy answers. Answers that I soon longed for. In today's reading, I wonder if perhaps Peter and maybe some of the other disciples too had been living with Jesus in a way that was challenging them to see the world in a whole new light. A way of reorienting their lives towards these kingdom values Jesus kept talking about. Values in which the first should be last. The one who wants to gain his life should first lose it. The greatest should be like a little child? The shepherd who will risk leaving everyone else behind to go after the one that is lost. These confusing upside down values to them might have prompted them in trying to make sense of it all to hope for something a little simpler for a change. Some math (laughs) that would give them a, a clear answer to some of life's biggest challenges. Challenges, for example, like how often should we forgive? And maybe even for how big of an offense should we offer forgiveness? Perhaps it's that desire for a simpler answer, a mathematical answer, that Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive? And then I suspect, thinking that he's being very generous, says, should it be seven times? Seven's a good holy number in Scripture, after all. And Jesus responds, no, 77 times. Or... If some of you were following in your own translations this morning, there's also a translation in English that says seven times 70 times, which would be 490 times. It's confusing because actually the Greek in which the New Testament is written is unclear about the exact equation that Jesus is telling Peter. And I wonder if maybe Jesus is trying to be ambiguous Maybe what Jesus is trying to say is that divine forgiveness, both given and received, is beyond calculation. It's beyond our comprehension. It's so beyond comprehension that even the original scribes of the New Testament realized that they couldn't quite put their finger on it. They couldn't quite come up with the right calculation. Because it's not about math. Lutheran scholar Caroline Lewis says... What Jesus is trying to get across to us is that the issue is not about how much or how often we should forgive. The act of forgiveness is limitless. It's a measureless act. It's never not present in our lives or relationships. It's part and parcel of kingdom values. It's a constant. It's not optional, even when we want it to be an option. As much as we want to exercise this principle of the Christian faith, we can't or we find it hard to bring ourselves to accept that forgiveness has an endless nature we would live in and feel more comfortable with a way of being with each other that's more quantifiable more transactional we like knowing how much we have to give and what we will get back in return don't we and that's a hard truth to learn As Jesus' parables remind us that the kingdom of heaven refuses to bend towards our own need for reasoning or explanations for a chartable path or for existential equations. No, there's no magic formula to determine what forgiveness should look like. And I would add, there's no math involved in this equation either. So, in order to further make his point, Jesus then tells this parable. A parable by the way, which is full of exaggeration and hyperbole. A king, wanting to clear accounts, brings in a servant who owes, we're told, 10,000 talents. Now, those terms, both 10,000 and the denomination, talent, would have been, in the first century, kind of uh, the largest terms that one could possibly imagine. 10,000 would be, like for us, saying a bajillion And a talent would be the largest denomination of money that one could possibly imagine or hold. And so in essence, Jesus is saying that this servant owes a debt that cannot possibly, will not ever be repaid in this servant's lifetime, no matter what the servant does. It cannot be repaid. And even to sell the servant and the servant's wives and children and all that he owns will not possibly even make a dent in the enormous debt that is owed. And yet... Instead of the king seeking punishment, revenge, restitution, as we talked about last week in our talk about justice, the king instead, after a plea from the servant, offers restoration, a pathway to be restored to the community, to be restored to citizenship in the kingdom. And yet, that same servant goes out and discovers a fellow servant who owes A hundred denarii, which by comparison is a minuscule amount. Jesus is setting in exaggeration the dramatic difference between the unpayable sum and the probably reasonably repaid sum. And yet, that servant does not forgive. Instead, he's compelled by his own greed and selfishness to jump on top of that fellow slave. What he was able to receive, he was not willing to forgive. The restoration that was offered to him, he is not able to offer in return. Even though, if you read carefully, you'll see that the plea of the first servant and the second are exactly the same language. To be forgiven because they will repay. The first servant and the second servant is often the same plea, and yet the second one is not offered the same forgiveness or restoration and I think the extraordinary difference in these two amounts of debts are Jesus' way of helping us to understand how wrong and unforgiving, how callous this first servant is. Jesus is making clear that although he is a servant of the king, a citizen of this kingdom, he is not living into the king or the kingdom's values. And I think part of what Jesus is trying to teach us here is something about our own relationship with the King, that is, how we understand our relationship with God, as citizens of God's kingdom, that standing before a holy and perfect God, we all bring a debt that we cannot possibly begin to repay, and yet God extends to us grace and forgiveness, grace and forgiveness extended to us even when we are an infant, and all throughout our lives, regardless of what we have done or left undone. And so Jesus is helping us understand something about God's grace in this. And yet I imagine that Jesus is also teaching Peter and the disciples something about the grace and forgiveness that they experience in their encounters with one another. That is, we may often see the debt that someone else owes us in an offense as being much larger and unforgivable than we are able in our frailty and fallibility to admit our own debt that we owe those same friends, those same neighbors, the same community. We think our debt, well, it's understandable, it's justifiable, it's rationalized. And so it's easy to imagine that someone could forgive our debt, and yet to forgive your debt, oh, that's much, much harder. We so quickly and easily get out of balance on these things. And I think Jesus is comparing these two debts as a way of helping us to remove the speck in our own eye before we look at the speck in someone else's. Of course, I think Jesus is also providing such a hyperbolic parable because he's wanting us to understand what is at stake in the need for us to offer forgiveness. Perhaps because if we're honest with ourselves, it's hard to offer forgiveness, isn't it? Sometimes I think it's hard to offer forgiveness because we're our own worst critic. We might find it hard to forgive ourselves. We might find it hard to allow God to forgive us or to accept and receive and embrace the forgiveness that God extends to us. When we pray every week, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, I think part of what we're saying in the Lord's Prayer is this interconnected relationship Between our ability to receive God's forgiveness and our being equipped to extend that forgiveness to others. If we're not able to forgive ourselves, if we're not able to honestly receive and embrace the forgiveness that God extends, it's going to be awfully hard for us to turn and to orient ourselves in a posture of forgiveness and humility towards others too. But the other thing that I think happens, and this is honestly even harder to admit, is that sometimes we don't want to forgive because it feels good to hold on to our anger, our righteousness, the power that we hold over somebody. When we know that we were right and you were wrong, that we've been slighted and we're gonna hold on to that over somebody. Honestly, there's something that can feel good about holding on to that anger. It fuels us. It stirs us up. Last Sunday morning, we were talking about this in the adult Sunday school class, and I admitted that there are times when my anger over some offense or some brokenness that's happened in a relationship will fuel me to go to the gym and work out. And there's something great about just turning up the music and finding myself really getting into a workout. And in my mind, I'm just stewing about and stewing about this broken situation, this offense. And in my mind, I'm writing the scripts. Do you ever write scripts for conversations that you're imaginary uh, happening, right? Or oh, the script about how I'm gonna confront this person and tell them how wrong they were and how right I was. Oh, there's something about that that feels good. I'm sure there's some good brain research about the kinds of chemicals that get released in that. But the truth is, that doesn't do us any good at all. I'm reminded of the author Anne Lamott, who once wrote that not forgiving somebody is like swallowing rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. (laughs) It's true. Now this morning, I also want to offer a little bit of the tension and reality that we hold In this environment of seeking to hold one another accountable and also to extend forgiveness and grace and mercy. Because on the one hand, in order for us to hold one another accountable, as we talked about last week in the model from earlier in chapter 18, where Jesus talks about one approaching one in order to... uh, acknowledge an offense and seek an apology and a reconciliation, and then two or three approaching the one and then the church. All of these are about holding accountable where someone is able to acknowledge the wrong that's been done, the hurt that has been caused, and then to seek confession and assurance of pardon and reconciliation. And of course, that is an important model for us in the church. We see that, for example, lived out in South Africa where Following an era of apartheid, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu created the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, reminding us there can't be reconciliation without first having truth. Reconciliation offers both the offer of forgiveness, but also the naming and acceptance of responsibility for wrongful and wounding conduct. Forgiveness, in this case, is not a detour or a shortcut. There's nothing faithful, after all, about Responding to evil or offense with a kind of passive acceptance or complicity. That's what theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Bonhoeffer himself faced the challenges of living in Nazi Germany as a church leader. He said cheap grace is is a way of preaching forgiveness without repentance. Offering baptism without discipleship or communion without confession or grace without the cross and so, of course, reconciliation forgiveness always has to include this acknowledgement, this uh, admittance of wrongdoing. And yet, the truth is sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes we have to make a decision about the forgiveness we offer, even when that reconciliation is not going to happen. Author Debbie Thomas reminds us that forgiveness is not, after all, the same thing as healing or reconciliation. Healing can have its own timetable, and sometimes reconciliation doesn't happen. Acknowledgement is not made. Sometimes our lives depend on severing ties with our offender, even after we've forgiven them. And in that sense, forgiveness is a kind of beginning rather than an end. It's an orientation. It's not quick and easy. It's a process. It's a linear, slow, it's a non-linear, slow process, It's choosing the foreground of love instead of resentment. After all, Thomas writes, if I'm consumed with my own pain, if I've made my injury my identity, if I've made my injury my identity, if I insist on weaponizing my well-deserved anger in every interaction I have with people who hurt me, then I'm the one who's drinking the poison, to Anne Lamott's point. And the poison will kill me long before it does anything to my abusers. To choose forgiveness is to release myself from the tyranny of my bitterness. Many years ago, a couple in Winnipeg, Canada, named Cliff and Wilma Dirksen, experienced one of the greatest tragedies that parents can experience. Their 13-year-old daughter, Candace, disappeared on the way home from school one day in their quiet little neighborhood on the outskirts of Winnipeg. As you would imagine, there was a desperate search for her. As police and the community and the news media got involved, they scoured the community for days, and eventually they got the worst possible news. Candace's body was found. She, it turns out, had been kidnapped and assaulted, And left to die in a shed actually not long, not far from their home in Winnipeg. And when the announcement was made, when the press conference happened, Cliff and Wilma were there, of course. And the police chief spoke. He gave the details about what happened. He offered a bit of pastoral care for the family. And then Cliff and Wilma were invited to come up if they wanted to say anything in response it's hard to imagine how a parent could say anything in that situation. And yet, Cliff got up that day, and in front of the cameras, just having learned that his daughter had been killed, he said, we would like, we would like to know who the person or persons are that committed this act. We'd like to know because we would like to share, hopefully, a love with them that seems to be missing From their lives. Honestly, that kind of response is hard to comprehend in the face of such a tragedy. And yet, if you look at the lives of Cliff and Wilma Dirksen, what you'll realize is that they're able to take a stand like that in that tragic moment because they're standing upon a foundation, a foundation of faith. The same foundation that we promised to raise our kids in, in baptism. The foundation of kingdom values and practices that lead to that kind of personal and communal healing and wholeness. For the Dirksons, it was a foundation built from a lifetime of being a part of the Mennonite Church of Canada. And if you happen to know anything about the tradition of the Mennonites, that particular tradition within the Christian faith, One of their core values is a value of forgiveness and reconciliation. Wilma would later say, Cliff and I come from a background of faith, and so the only thing that we could grab onto in that moment was the need to forgive. All we knew is that forgiveness could move us from being bitter and resentful. It could move the dark clouds from our lives, not completely, but at least move it out of the way for us to be able to move on and live our lives. Even though Cliff and I have chosen forgiveness, it still is a constant process, a complicated journey. And I've learned how important it is to do the journey, to go through the process. It's a choice. It's a lifestyle. I started to define forgiveness as a counterintuitive choice that we make about entering into a process of dealing with the trauma of injustice in a positive way, even when you're not able to work with a person towards reconciliation. We need to mend relationships, but we're not always going to be able to be reconciled with everybody, and yet we can always choose to forgive. Denver Pastor Nadia Bowles-Weber puts it this way, She says, maybe retaliation or holding on to anger about the harm that's been done to me doesn't actually combat evil in the end. Maybe it only feeds it. Because in the end, if we're not careful, we can actually absorb the worst of our enemy. And at some level, we start to become them. So what if forgiveness, she asks, rather than being a dismissive, self-injuring way of saying, ah, it's okay, What if instead forgiveness is actually a way of wielding bolt cutters and cutting off the chains that weigh us down and link us together? What if forgiveness is saying, What you did to me was so not okay that I refuse to be connected to it or weighed down or bound up in it anymore? Forgiveness in that sense is really about being a freedom fighter. Free people are not controlled by the past. It turns out free people often laugh more than others. Free people see beauty where others may not. Free people are not easily offended. Free people are not afraid to speak truth to a broken and fearful world. Free people are not chained to their past resentments. And that is worth fighting for. This language of fighting seems appropriate in this context because it is so hard. It's so hard for us to accept forgiveness. It's so hard for us to be willing to offer forgiveness for so many reasons. It's so hard for us to get out of that quantitative equation of wanting our forgiveness to be transactional, offering only the exact amount that we might receive in return. And yet Jesus turns all of this upside down with a wonderful parable about the ways of the kingdom of heaven in which we are reminded of how much we have been forgiven and therefore equipped to be able to extend that same grace and mercy to others. But we know that it's hard, that none of us are perfect at it, and we continue to work at it with the Spirit's help every day. Today if you go to Charlotte, North Carolina and to the gravestone of Ruth Bell Graham you'll see the inscription that she asked to be put on her gravestone. It says simply, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. (laughs) And I love, love that idea, that image for the Christian life that all of us are works of construction until we go to be with God. All of us Our works under construction who need the patience of others to the very end to let us freely give and receive the extravagant forgiveness that Jesus commands of us. This morning, we're invited to hear Jesus, to take up the hard work of forgiveness for the sake of a desperate and broken world. In many ways, it's the most important work that we can do as the children of a God who grieves and rages against oppression and offense, injury and brokenness, discord and division. As we receive and extend forgiveness, we loose the chains that bind us so that we might rise and stand upon that firm foundation of faith. It isn't easy, it's never simple, and it's certainly not math. But the deeper lessons from Jesus today is the call upon our lives to keep paying forward the healing and forgiveness of Jesus Christ until God's kingdom comes and justice reigns for each of us and for all of us in the kingdom of heaven. Amen.